Chapter 19 Creation of the Universal Family What we are to apprehend from our first images of human fatherhood is a foundational lesson. It is so simple, in fact, that it escapes most of humankind. It is just this. Where there is an imperfect reflection, there must be a perfect source of the reflection. It is a fact of the universe. Every reflection has a source. If there is an incomplete fatherhood, there must be a perfect fatherhood. Therefore, if I am to be a true man or woman, I must seek to find that true source, that higher fatherhood. What prevents God's creatures from entering into that happiest, that highest, that most wonderful and holy relationship that he intended? Society and modernity, certainly, pressure against it. The self-motivated will of man, of course, makes choices contrary to it. And sin infiltrates every corner of man's being with a lie of independence, that most serious of all preventive inoculations to ward off intimacy. But let's get more personal. Let's stop talking about man and mankind. What prevents you and me from laying hold of the very relationship everything within us cries out for? This question probes the very bedrock of our spiritual existence. To find the answer requires journeying back toward the distant foundations of all things, back to the very beginning in Genesis 1, back to the sixth day of creation. Let us seek there not abstract history, but truth for ourselves. For what purpose did God create man on that significant sixth day of creation? Who among his fallen world of creatures can probe the infinitely ageless, creatively motivated heart of God? His infinitude is unknowable by our finiteness. To ask why God does anything is rendered contradictory by definition. He is not subject to the whys of reason. God is, therefore, everything. What he wills simply is. I am is his name. No why fits into that I amness. He delights, however, when we apply ourselves more deeply to understand his ways, seeking not the contradictory whys of man's convoluted reasonings, but eager to enter into the divine whys of the Father's plan. Let us thus dare suggest the following. God created man to expand the family of his fatherness. The expression of the Son within the Godhead was a holy extension of the divine being. But the Son was an only child, 
and the creative heart of love beat with creating love energy toward more sons and daughters whom he could bring into his family as brothers and sisters to his son. Let us make man in our image, God said. The divine family, the threefold us, already walked the earth prior to day six, but the father of that triune family desired more creatures to partake in it. They would be of a lesser nature, it is true, and far more vulnerable. To give them the greatest gift possible, the free will of mortal choice, would involve an enormous risk. But the divine firstborn would be their elder brother. He would help them learn to live in their childness within the family of creation, even sacrificing for them if need be. He would be all an elder brother should be. And in spite of their potential susceptibility to forces outside the family, they would still retain the image of their creator father. His fingerprint could never be eradicated from their hearts. So the father created man, and his universal family was made, and he blessed them, giving them dominion and wisdom and food and companionship and pleasure and the most wondrous place imaginable to live. He created these younger brothers and sisters to fellowship with him and his firstborn, to walk with them in the garden in the cool of the day, to work the earth of his creation, to reproduce, to tend the lower creatures of his unbounded divine imagination, to rule the earth, and to fully enjoy all the goodness he had made. Everything God made was good, including his children. God saw that it was good. God saw that it was good. God saw that it was good. So vital and significant is this truth of goodness that God instructed the writer of the Genesis account to repeat it seven times, the number of perfection, punctuating it after the creation of man with the words, Very good. Goodness was the air of the garden, and it is the oxygen we must learn to breathe if we are to travel far in the mountainous regions of faith. As familiar as we are with the word, however, living by the vitality and life energy of its sustenance is unfamiliar. The valley theologians to whom we have long listened have corrupted the word and made us afraid to imagine that God might be too good. As a result, we don't imagine him good enough. This is the resounding truth of Genesis 1. God created man in his own image. God saw all that he had made, and it was very good. And there was evening, and there was morning, the sixth day. Incredible as it seems, 
There's a certain branch of pietism and populist theology prevalent today that speaks of some of the old-fashioned scriptural virtues, such as goodness, as if they are actually bad things. This short-sightedness isolates a verse such as Isaiah 64, 6. All of us have become like one who is unclean, and all our righteous acts are like filthy rags, and erects an entire theology around it, ignoring the sevenfold declaration of Genesis from God's own mouth. Misguided doctrines result, putting black above white, making hell a deeper truth in the economy of eternity than God's victory, and declaring the starting point for the gospel to be sin instead of love. Those who make sin the foundational starting point for attempting to understand the nature of man do God's creation a grievous wrong. With that sand-built base as their starting point, they are able to understand neither man nor the Father. Rather than undergird their theologies with the eternal bedrock of Genesis 1, the beginning, they begin their erroneous expositions at Genesis 3, as if the very good declaration of the Creator did not even exist. They come at truth from the wrong angle altogether, thus entirely missing the vital point that goodness lies deeper in the heart of man's nature than the sin, which came later entered from the outside. Goodness lies deeper in man because God put himself there. It was very good. Goodness is intrinsic to man's nature. Sin is not. Sin is the corrupting virus that has temporarily contaminated goodness. But even sin itself cannot alter the truth of Genesis 1.31 that echoes throughout all eternity. Goodness lies deep in the bedrock of the universe, not merely because what God created was good, but because goodness embodies God's nature itself. Do we seek to know what the Father is like? We have not far to look. We have only to open our Bibles and read one chapter, the very first chapter. Good, 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 very good. The divine fingerprint of what he created reflects who God is at every point. Perfect, sevenfold goodness. Following the mighty creation of Genesis 1 came the triumphant unveiling of God's ultimate and perfect blueprint of life within his newly created family, the majestic glory of Genesis 2. Here was life as God intended it, good life. Genesis 2 details perfection. It opens with rest, with a holy day, because creation was fully accomplished and fully good. It goes on to describe the kind of life 
God intended to enjoy with his creatures. A beautiful garden was to be their home. Trees were planted that were pleasing to look at, and with fruit pleasing to eat. What provision! Not mere trees, but good and pleasing trees. Not just some trees. All kinds of trees. Did Adam and Eve need to eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil? Of course not. They had every other kind of tree imaginable, as well as every other generous provision. It was an enormous garden. Four mighty rivers flowed through it. The very word garden may give us an entirely limited impression. For all we know, this garden where God dwelt with man could have comprised the entire Middle East, or perhaps half the globe. Life with God in the garden was anything but dull. It was a life of constantly receiving good from the hands of God. God gave and gave and gave, and everything he gave was very good. He gave Adam a helper, Eve. He gave both of them all they needed. He gave them the privilege of working with him to tend the garden. He gave them food. He gave them freedom. He gave them pleasure. He gave them wisdom and knowledge. He gave them dominion over the earth. He gave them innocence. Most of all, he gave them fellowship with himself, the God who had made them. He gave them nothing less than a perfect life. Perfection everywhere. How long they lived in the garden in this perfect and innocent state, it is impossible to conjecture. But it clearly went on for an extended period. Time enough for Adam to name all the birds and all the beasts of the ground. We sometimes imagine that the fall occurred within 24 hours of the creation of man. I don't think so. This innocent state of life might have lasted a hundred years or more for all we know. Genesis 2 is one of the Bible's most significant chapters offering limitless insight into the purposes of God's heart. 